Amen. Thank you. Um, and by the way, it really means a lot to have you here. I haven't done this in a long time, as you know, for those of you who have been here with us for a while. Um, it, it is not lost on me that you are here this evening, and I, I appreciate it no end. I'd like to begin this teaching time, um, even this series this winter uh, that we're going to have, with a quote that comes from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And that book, Knowing God, if you are looking for a Christian classic to read, to edify your soul, would certainly fill the bill. Because right from the very start, Packer quotes another Brit, C.H. Spurgeon, on the concept of the appropriate application of time and academic inquiry on our part. And, and by the way, as I do this, understand that Packer, J.I. Packer, is an Anglican, call him an Episcopalian. He is quoting Spurgeon, a Baptist, which is being presented to you by Anderson, the Presbyterian. So I think we would call this an ecumenical moment here. But this is, this is Packer's quote of Spurgeon. And it's a little long, so what I've done is I provided for you on the back of your second sheet, I've provided that quote, the whole quote. And I'm going to read that, and I'm going to take a little bit of a, a part as we go down. So um, keep that in front of you and follow along. I think it'll help you gather the import of this quote. Spurgeon writes, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, one might translate Spurgeon's language from 19th century English English into American English. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There's something exceeding improving to the mind in the contemplation of of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with a thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, Finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths and that our eagle eye cannot see its heights, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild donkey's colt. I translated that one, too. <laughs> and with the solemn exclamation, I am but yesterday and know nothing. No subject matter of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. 
But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. I'm thinking about Pastor Patrick's uh, quote from C.S. Lewis this morning about the, the, the child that is, that is outside making and eating mud pies in the yard while there's a sumptuous meal inside and the child thinking this mud pie is, is delightful. And that's, that's what we do when we pursue inordinately pursuits uh, that don't have to do with the, with the contemplation of Almighty God. He needs to be in the midst of us. And continuing, and whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. It consoles our soul. Oh, there is contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there's a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go. Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is that subject that I invite you to this evening. Now, the thing that bothers me about this quote is that Spurgeon was 20 years old when he wrote it. <laughs> so, what is Spurgeon saying? Well, I think we could spend hours just pulling apart this quote, but structurally he's saying three things. Excuse me. That's Kenny Rogers calling to remind me that I need to take my meds. Okay. I think structurally uh, um, Spurgeon is saying three things with this quote. The first thing he is saying is the contemplation of God is mind expanding. Now, many of us came up through the 60s and 70s and Dr. Timothy Leary, who was a uh, Harvard professor and psychologist, he had his own thoughts on mind expansion. He came from the, the brave New World camp of Algis Huxley, and he believed mind expansion came through altering the mind. And as you know, he advocated psychotropic drugs to achieve mind-altering states. The Beatles, among others, joined him uh, in, that, in that pursuit. They jumped on board. I heard John Lennon say that their song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, was not about LSD. I don't believe it. Lucy, L, Lucy, Sky, S, Sky, Diamonds, D, Diamonds, LSD. 
the words, picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Someone calls you, uh, you answer quite slowly, a girl with kaleidoscope eyes. He's describing an LSD trip. And so goes the rest of the song. And, and when, when LSD and other psychotropics became unpopular, incidentally, they're coming back into popularity. Some states are even voting now on uh, using, uh, recreationally, legalizing some of these drugs. But when that proved, at least in the 60s and 70s, socially unacceptable because of the physical and psychological harm that it caused, we turned to transcendental meditation to expand or improve our mind. It was popularized by the guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and it was an adaptation of Hinduism, Eastern mysticism, which likely would have been rejected right away due to the religious stigma of the Western nations uh, who were somewhat concerned about being anything other than at least um, give the patina of Christianity and uh, Hinduism probably wouldn't have gone over very well, but it was marketed successfully as transcendental meditation and stripped of its religious stigma, it was made acceptable to the Western world and promoted as a way to find psychological and physical peace And by emptying the mind, they said, one improves the mind. And then layered on top of that was uh, modern, or some call it pop psychology, where we train the mind, all in an effort to expand or improve the mind. Um, Pastor Patrick told a story this morning similar to this one. Please forgive me, This this is right on the edge of acceptability. Give me a break. It's about a guy, a guy who had trouble um, with wetting the bed. And uh, he had a friend who said, you know, maybe if you went to saw a psychologist, you could get past that. Well, they saw each other about six months later. And the man said, how are you doing? The guy said, I'm doing great. He said, I took your suggestion. I went to a psychologist. And the guy said, then you stopped wetting the bed. And he said, well, no, but I'm, now I'm proud of it. So, modern psychology tries to train the, the mind, retrain the mind, give it another way of thinking, uh, and then um, maybe even tricking the mind a little bit. But you see, Spurgeon was suggesting a superior way to expand the mind and to improve the mind. Spurgeon was talking about something completely different. We just came through the Christmas season where we learned that Mary, having had a baby and then an encounter with shepherds who had been directed to her uh, by means of an angelic visit, treasured up these things in her heart, Luke tells us, and pondered them. What Mary was doing was she's practicing a long-standing Hebrew and now Christian practice of meditation. But Judeo-Christian meditation is very different than TM or Eastern meditation because in Eastern meditation, you seek to empty your mind of everything to improve and expand it. With Christian meditation, the goal is to fill your mind with Scripture. And so we read in Psalm 1, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step 
with the wicked or stand in the way uh, that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who so delight, but whose, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. When you read law, read scriptures. That was their Torah, the scriptures. So the psalmist is filling his mind with the law day and night, which is what Mary did. She treasured up the works of God and pondered them, meditated on, carried them with her in her experience every day, every night. And so Spurgeon said, first, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There's something exceeding improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity, which he means by divinity he's talking about. Almighty God. And that's the first thing that that Spurgeon is saying in this quote, that the contemplation of God is mind improving. The second thing Spurgeon says is that the contemplation, the meditation thereof, the pondering of God is ego humbling. He says it is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. In the, in the subject of God, of the Godhead, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. And that is where we will go in just a minute. But to illustrate that point, I want to read a scripture passage out of the book of Job. And it's where Job is met by a friend. And, and I have to say that, that one of the things that I picked up from just my study of this, this subject is that when, we, when you begin to, to wrap your arms around the idea of God and you begin to try to assimilate that into your life there's no point that that, that touches your soul your life, your heart more than when you're suffering when there's pain I'll explain that in a minute. But this is where Job is met by a friend, Elihu, who helps put Job's issues in perspective by introducing contemplations about God. And this is what Job says in Job 36. Remember, or excuse me, this is what Elihu says to Job in Job 36. Remember that you should exalt his work. Job had a, I mean, he had several bad days, bad days put right together. Uh, and so he was, he was suffering. And Elihu says, remember that you should exalt his work of which men have sung. All men have seen it. Men, man beholds from afar. Behold, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is inscrutable. Thank you. For he draws up the drops of water. Uh, they distill rain from the mist which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his tabernacle or pavilion? 
Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea. For by those, he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. The thunder's noise declares his presence. The cattle also concerning what is to happen, what is to come. Then down to chapter 37. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heavens he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and he has not restrained the lightning when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously doing great things which we cannot comprehend. According to the incomprehensibility. For to the snow, he says, fall on earth. And to the dozen, uh, and to the downpour of rain, he says, be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. And you see, that's just Elihu who is suggesting that to him. And only a part of it, because God steps up afterwards. In baseball parlance, we would say, God was batting cleanup. And he makes Elihu sound like he's been deeply discounting God's person and work. The end of it all is that when God reaches intermission, after 73 verses of dressing down Job, Job is completely broken and says this in Job chapter 40, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will add no more. God unfolded before Job a vision of who he was, so explicit that it's reminiscent of Isaiah and his experience of seeing God in a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah said, What was me? He was calling a prophetic curse upon himself. What was me? For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a land of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the Lord. And Job had a similar experience as God unfolded his person and work to Job. Job says, once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will add no more. I'm thinking of uh, the passage uh, that Patrick preached this morning about how Peter, when he was first understanding the holiness of Christ... In, in the face of that miracle of the fish, he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So, we learn that the contemplation of Almighty God is ego-humbling. We already saw that the contemplation of God is mind-improving. But Spurgeon finally says the contemplation of God is soul-consoling. Uh, is, is soul Spurgeon said, in contemplating, pondering, meditating on Christ, a balm for every wound, 
a musing on the Father. There's a quietness for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there's a balsam for every sore. Would you drown? Would you self-medicate your cares? Would you lose your sorrows? Then go plunge yourself in God's, in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity. And that brings to, that brings us to thoughts, uh, or tonight's top, topic, which pretty much has been covered with this introduction to our series. Um, from Spurgeon, the inscrutability of God or the incomprehensibility of God. And, and our objective in the next 13 weeks is to present to you the scriptural des- description of God and we'll most certainly not exhaust the subject. After all, God is inscrutable and incomprehensible. I was talking with Paul ahead of the service here this evening and he said, well, it's a good thing you're going to explain this because I don't quite understand how how we could learn something that's incomprehensible. But as we seek to to wrap our arms around this inscrutable, this incomprehensible God, the idea is to expand and improve our mind by filling it with Scripture having to do with the knowledge of God, what Spurgeon is commending to us with his, quote, um, what many call theology, what I called theology a little earlier. Theology is an umbrella term. Actually, its broadest conception, theology is the umbrella term for every created thing. Astronomy, after a fashion, is theology, since the Bible tells us that God created the universe and has named all the stars. Sociology is theology, and as much as God said, it is not good for man to be alone. It deals with the uh, interconnectedness of people. Psychology is theology, and the Bible says we should think God's thoughts after him. Theology can be thought of as encompassing every conceivable academic discipline, but let's think of it from a narrower point of view. We're going to call this religious theology. I know, I know, I know. Christianity isn't a religion. Religion is man trying to discover God. But Christianity is God becoming man. I'm going to call it religious theology uh, because, for the sake of a handle, to give it a name. And it still, um, it still subsumes several disciplines. Theology, theologians refer to, to a number of different disciplines in the realm of religious theology. Christology, for instance. The study of Christ. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Soteriology, the study of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Eschatology, the study of the end times. And teleology, which is another study of the last things. And the queen of them all, theology proper. What does the Bible teach us about God? We have what theologians refer to as a revealed religion, which is to say that we don't create or invent truths about God, as Freud had said. We discover it in a limited way in nature, God's expression of self, uh, his, his self-expression on the palate of his creation, and most specifically in the Bible. It is this type of theology, theology proper, that we hope to bring to you over the next 
few months. But as I said tonight, if ever so briefly, the inscrutability of God. So in everything about which I've been speaking so far this evening, we have been speaking about God's inscrutability. His, his immensity, the, the bigness of who God is, the mind-improving, mind-expanding uh, thoughts about God. And when we scrutinize something, we examine it, we study it, we research it, we want to exhaust all resources in our search about it with the ob- objective of 100% comprehension of the object. We'll never get there. We will never plumb the depths of God. He is infinite. We are finite. He is eternal. We are created. Even when we get to heaven, there will always be more to learn because he will always be the creator. And we will always be the creatures. And that means God is inscrutable. He is incomprehensible. He is beyond our total understanding. We quoted Job 36, Behold, God is exalted, and we don't know him. The number of his years is inscrutable. And we quoted uh, Luke telling us that Mary uh, treasured up information and pondered it. One can properly infer that Mary hadn't put it all together yet. She sought to expand her knowledge and improve her mind, so she pondered. And we read that the psalmist meditated on the scriptures day and night. And I want to take a brief moment to point out an ode to inscrutability. And it happens in Romans. And to really comprehend what is happening in Romans when Paul gives us this ode to uh, inscrutability. You need to know the style of the author. Paul, having written several letters had a habit of developing a logical, theological argument. Someone pointed at the complicated issues of a particular church, and then he applies this theological argumentation to specific issues of the church. Husbands, love your wives. Church members, exercise your gifts and talents. Uh, Pray always. Don't be anxious. Give thanks in every circumstance. They all grow out of issues uh, of religious... um, of religious theology, theology proper. And and Paul unfolds that theology, and then he applies. Now, as he would write, you can see this throughout his letters, as he would write, he would intermittently, he'll say something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that will so grab him that he will burst into doxology. We do that too. Our favorite sports team has a spectacular play, and we can't stay in our seats. It's like maybe like when one of the Chicago Cubs hits a game-winning home. No, that's not a very good illustration. (laughs) That just doesn't happen. But I remember on October the 15th of 1988, I just happened to be uh, watching a game. I I don't do this too often, but I was watching a ball game at home. It was a playoff game of the Dodgers who were down by a run in the ninth inning, and Kurt Gibson of the Dodgers came in with an injured leg. He had sat out several games before because of his injured leg. Vin Scully was announcing, and Kurt Gibson hit a ninth inning walk-off, two-run home run, come from behind. The Dodgers won the game. They won the playoffs, 
Eventually, they won the World Series. Now, I'm not particularly a Dodger fan, but I have to say that when that happened, the drama of the moment propelled me out of my seat in doxology, in praise of that very emotional moment. Did anybody see the Messiah this year? Uh, the last time I saw the Messiah, and it, this happens everywhere. Now it's more a matter of a habit, but in its origin, it was more spontaneous. And that is, the hallelujah chorus came, and the king was so taken with that hallelujah chorus. What did he do? Doxology. He stood to his feet. It propelled him out of his out of his chair, and and uh, and. And we do that in, in any experience. We, did, we do that in the morning when Gordon finishes playing something, when, when Annie sings something, when the choir presents something. Uh, our, our, our reaction is, I've got to do something. I've got to respond in some way, and we clap. Some people don't like clapping. I think it's doxology. The book of Romans was Paul's Magna Carta, his great letter, a very tightly woven argument about theology, proper soteriology and ecclesiology. was a little bit of Christology and pneumatology thrown in as well. And this is how John Stott puts it. He says, for 11 chapters, Paul has been giving his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he has shown how God has revealed his way of, of putting sinners right with himself. How Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. How we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. How the Christian life is lived not under the law but in the spirit. And how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and of the Gentiles into his new community. Paul's horizons are vast. He takes in time and eternity History and eschatology, justification, sanctification, glorification. Now he stops and takes a breath. Analysis and argument must give way to adoration before Paul goes on to outline the practical implications of the gospel. He falls down before God and he worships. And this is what he says in praise of all the theology that he has surfaced. And it's in Romans 11. It's the passage that's in your, uh, on your outlines. And you can follow me along as I read this. But uh, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths and of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is what that says. But that word is also translated how inscrutable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him? that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That was Paul bursting into doxology at the thought of, of the, the depth, the breadth, the, the inscrutability, the unsearchableness of God and his judgments. It's vaguely reminiscent of his words to the, to the Corinthian church. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many 
uh, mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God is of such immensity that it is beyond our ability to conceive of him fully. We try, and generally by doing so, we minimize him. I thought the other day, what if I won the $1.1 billion lottery? Wouldn't God be lucky to have me on his team to see those ministries? Wouldn't it be fun to give away hundreds of millions of dollars, just like I was in Congress? (laughs) Then I thought, wait a minute. That would all be for my benefit. That would all be for my fun. As if God needed the money. He created everything. He created everything out of nothing. Why does he need paper from me? Of course, he doesn't. He made all things from nothing. Now that is humbling, that God needs nothing from me. God is inscrutable. He is incomprehensible. It is worth pondering. So, what is the takeaway? Well, I I think the, the first first thing that I take away from this study on the incomprehensibility of God or the inscrutability of God is that when I contemplate who I am before Almighty God, there's, there's something that is psychologically freeing about being forgiven. And I don't understand the grace of God. Oh, I, I, I can accept it, and I certainly believe it, but I don't understand it. I don't understand how my sin, which is which is not a victimless, victimless crime, uh, my sin is offensive to God, and I have violated His justice. And God has said that there would be someone who would stand in for me to take. Upon himself the stripes that my sin deserved. I don't get that. I don't understand that. I know that if I've offended somebody, and maybe I've offended a great many of you, but um, if I've offended somebody, it's hard for me to stand in their presence because that is that is a, a, just an unresolved issue between people, and it's uncomfortable and it's awkward. You've probably bumped into people where you have that sort of relationship. Becky Pippert wrote in a book, um, Open Heart, Open Home, she wrote in that book that when, when somebody knows everything about you and the worst of it has been forgiven, then there's nothing that anybody can do to you. How freeing that is. How psychologically freeing that is. And, and to, to understand the inscrutability of God, that I will never understand his grace. And yet I will stand before him wearing robes of righteousness, not my own, from Christ himself. That, to me, that is something very special. And it's a very practical thing that is derived from the theology of of this incomprehensible attribute of God, his grace. Which was thinking, Greg, are you doing that, the grace of God? Is that yours? No. Okay, that must be Pete. 
In any case, the grace of God uh, is that's the first thing. I'll, I'll never understand it. I'll certainly be very happy about it. There's some things that 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 everybody know about me. There's some things that only a few people know about me. There are very few things that only Carrie knows about me. And there are some things that not even Carrie knows about me. They're just too shameful, too humiliating. When I think about them, it makes me shiver. And yet, God says, you will stand before me in, in white robes. The robes of Christ. That's the first thing I think that I take away from this. Uh, the, the next thing is educate, educate. Information, any information can change your mind. One of the things that I learned in high school physics, which I really loved, was the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of reflection. Now, isn't that special? No. That was 51 years ago that I learned that thing. And I still remember that word for word. And I could also go to its corollary, which is the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of refraction. You see, what does that mean today? Nothing. Well, unless I'm shooting pool. And then you've got to figure the angles out then. But, but um, that, that, that's just information. But information, the best information, information concerning the Godhead can change your life. And it has repeatedly changed the world wherever it has gone. That's why many of you will hear me praying from time to time for Chairman Xi and, uh, and Secretary Putin. Uh, and you think, this guy's lost his mind. Well, that may be, that's a separate issue. But I still pray for those guys. Because if God chooses to change their heart, like he changed the heart of Paul, who then uh, was later, it was said that these Christians have, have turned the world upside down. In one generation, that was the work of the Apostle Paul. And if God could change Paul's heart, he could change Chairman Xi's heart like that. And he could change Putin's heart like that. And I pray for their conversions because that could change the world again and again and again and again. And it will. Information, the best information concerning the Godhead as it works down in our lives, as we meditate on these things, education, it can change a life. It can change a world. Second, or third, educate. Next one is meditate. I think as we consider the inscrutability and incomprehensibility of God, there's a counterintuitive encouragement, which Paul pointed out to me earlier, to meditate. Christian meditate on theology, the things of God. Fill your mind with big thoughts about God as that expands and improves your mind as you close in on the immensity of God. Your own adversities will fall into perspective and you'll be better able to handle problems as they present themselves. Psalm 63, 6, when I remember, when I remember thee on my bed, I meditate thee on thee in my night watches, for thou hast been my help. He meditates on these things. He runs them over in his mind. He tries to get a handle on it. He talks with other people about it. He explores the nooks and crannies of that, those thoughts. And even on the night watches, he says, when well, you're all alone at night, 
going to go to sleep and you can't, and you've counted sheep until there's no more numbers. The psalmist would think about the immensity of Almighty God. And he would say, I remember then that you have been my help. So meditating on the things of God will help put your, your problems, your issues in perspective. And finally, educate, meditate, marinate. Uh, Psalm 42.5, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember the marinate in the knowledge of God. And that knowledge will become the experience of God. The imminence or closeness of God will be yours. I'm, I'd like to tell you I have mastered this. I want you to believe that. But it's not true. I'm a piker. I'm getting there. I'm trying to learn these things. And I do meditate a lot. You know, the amazing thing about this is I could spend a lot of time trying to put this together and spend a few minutes here of your time preaching about this subject matter. It's very humbling to know that what Annie said and what Gordon did in leading us in those songs will have a more lasting effect on all these notes right here. Because we will marinate in those songs as the music enlivens those words to us. That's kind of humbling, too. But I'm learning. We're all learning. We're all in a process. It's a great journey. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for, for making yourself known to us, for giving us not only this, the beauty of your nature, and indeed, God, you are a God of beauty, and we recognize that visually from uh, what we see every night, the sunset, every morning, the, the orange sun coming up over the horizon. And then we hear audibly uh, the beauty of, uh, of melody and harmony. Uh, and, and then we see words and music come together and our hearts are moved. God, we, we thank you for that, for being a God of beauty and giving us beauty. And uh, God, we pray now that as we ponder the things that tonight we have been exposed to. We pray that you would lift our hearts every day, every day, that, that our own issues might fall into perspective. Uh, what can harm us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him? Freely give us all things. Thank you, God. And, and as we seek to scrutinize you, what little we can, we pray that you would bless us with, with results that our, our knowledge might increase, our mind might improve, and, uh, and that consequently, God, we'd not only be humbled, but we would, uh, we would bask in the glow of the experience of Almighty God. Hear us, God, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, uh, may God's grace, mercy, and peace, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, fall upon you and be with you this evening and in the week to come. We make our 
prayer and our benediction in the name of Jesus, our glorious Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you and good night.